FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Good to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a really terrific show lined up for you as we talk about the career of uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi today. Uh, Before we begin that conversation, though, um, Amelia Brock uh, called my attention to the fact that we really need to report out to you the latest numbers on COVID here in the state of Georgia. They're troubling. We're up to 722,000 cases. This is the State Department of Public Health report as of uh, the end of the day yesterday, we're rapidly approaching 12,000 Georgians who have died. We're at 11,854. We have 48 plus thousand people hospitalized at this point. And uh, although we're not going to discuss it on the show today, uh, tomorrow when we return to a conversation about politic, the political news of the day, we're going to certainly take a look at the fact that uh, Governor Kemp has released a budget Uh, which in the midst of a pandemic gives very minimal uh, additional resources to the Department of Public Health. And we'll uh, discuss what that's all about in um, shows tomorrow and in the days ahead. In the meantime, though, we have a show today that I'm very excited uh, about. Um, Molly Ball is with us. She is Time Magazine's national political correspondent. Uh, Molly also... Uh, was a political reporter for The Atlantic, for Politico. I'm interested in the fact that Molly, and I'll ask her about this, at one point reported for a newspaper in Cambodia. Um, But just in case you think that those people who are in Washington journalism are somehow elitists, somehow above the ordinary day-to-day lives that many of us live, you should know that back a number of years ago, Molly Ball won $100,000 on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> is that right, Molly? <laughs> Have I got it everything is, right I, so far? <laughs> I, yep, I always put that in my bio because it's such a great uh, conversation piece. But I, I'm, I'm not clear on the, the logic here. Does that make me an elitist or a non-elitist? Oh, no, it makes you a non-elitist, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you were part of... I look, you should so. have related... I mean, look, you were a game show contestant, you and Donald Trump, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how I paid off my student loans and paid for my wedding. I I, I, want to add, if I may, one more. It's a much more personal uh, uh, introduction of you. Uh, Back in, I think it was 2012, you were awarded the Robin Toner Prize for uh, national reporting of uh, the presidential campaign that year for issues like gay marriage. And I want to mention that because those of us who've been around for a long time, I I knew Robin well first when she was a terrific reporter for the AJC. And then she and I spent an awful lot of time together when she went to the New York Times on the road covering the 1988 presidential race. And, And so... It just means a lot to know, uh, for those of us who've been journalists in this town for a long time, to know that you at one point won a prize named after such an illustrious journalist. And I think, fair to say, Molly, 
a woman who gave a lot of other young women journalists uh, became an inspiration to them to pursue that uh, life as journalists. Absolutely. Certainly for me. And, and thank you so much for mentioning that. It is one of the greatest honors of my career and uh, a wonderful uh, tradition uh, in her honor that that, that that prize exists for political journalists yeah. today. Yeah, Robin, we, we should just say Robin died far too young of uh, colon cancer. All right, uh, let's talk Pelosi. And I couldn't ask for two better partners for this show uh, and this discussion today. It is Tuesday, which means my AJZ partner for the show is senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, really glad that you could be part of this conversation. You covered a lot of the same territory that Molly did in your years as the Washington correspondent for the AJC. Me too. And reading Molly's book, it was like walking down memory lane or dusting off parts of my brain that I'd completely, you know, names I hadn't thought about in five or 10 years. And so it was a blast and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, also joining us today, Patricia Murphy, who also spent a good deal of time covering, not only covering the Hill uh, for uh, Roll Call, uh, for the Daily Beast, um, but also uh, worked the Hill as an aide to Senator Sam Nunn and before, uh, I mean, be, yeah, first for Sam Nunn in a rather junior role and then in a uh, more senior role for Senator Max Cleland. And as we mentioned on this show last week, Patricia, not only are you the newest political reporter for the HAC, but starting a week from tomorrow, we will see your first column as the AJC's new political columnist. We're so happy for you, Patricia. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and it is such a treat to be able to be on with Molly today. Um, her book just so captures Capitol Hill and Washington and how important relationships are on the Hill. And just like tomorrow, to me, it was just like being back there. So Molly, I love this book so much. I'm excited to talk about it and I'm excited um, to be with you too. Thank you um, so much. Molly, Thanks I, to both of you. I love the book, too. I absolutely loved it. And if you don't mind, I want to start um, by playing a clip that um, goes along with how you started your book. You uh, recount at the very opening a meeting that took place on December 11th, I think is the actual date, 2019. And it was an important uh, meeting for many reasons. Um, President Trump was threatening to shut down the government, threatening to reject any kind of continuing resolution unless he got money to fund the wall, one of his biggest campaign uh, promises. And it came at a time when Nancy Pelosi herself was under fire in terms of whether or not she had what it took to be the leader of the Democrats. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but I'd love to play, I've done an edited version just so everybody knows. This is not um, in, in, in a it, complete, it's, it's edited in places, but it captures the essence of what happened when Donald Trump invited cameras to come in and he thought reveal him to be the great negotiator that he styled himself to be. So let's listen to Pelosi, to Trump, and to leader Chuck Schumer. There are no votes in the House, a majority of votes, for a wall. 
no matter where That's you exactly start. Exactly right. You don't have if I needed the, the votes for the wall in the House, I would have them mm -hmm. in one session. Well, would be do done. It. Do it. it doesn't help because we need ten Democrats in no, the don't Senate. Put it on the Senate. Put it of on. Course. Put it on a negotiation. Okay, let me ask you this. Just and we're doing this in a very friendly manner. It doesn't help for me to take a vote in the House where I will win easily with the Republicans. It, will not win. it doesn't help to take that vote because I'm not going to get the vote well, of the Senate. the Senate. I need 10 senators. That's Mr. the President, problem. You have the White House. You have the Senate. I have the you White have House. The, the White House, House is done. And the House would give me the vote if I wanted it. And let me just say one thing. The fact is, you do not have the votes in the House. Nancy, I do. And we need well, border security. Vote, Nancy, we'll find out. Nancy. We came in here in good faith, uh, and, and, and we're entering into a of this kind of a, a discussion in the public view. But it's not bad, that, Nancy. That has, no, and, no, it's called it's, transparency. I, I know. It's not transparency when we're not stipulating to a set of facts and when we want to have a debate with you about saying we confront some of those facts. Without you know what? We public. need border security. This That's what we're going to be talking about, border security. If we don't have border security, we'll shut down the government. I don't think we really disagree so much. I also know that, you know, Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now, and I understand that, and I fully understand that. We're going to have a good discussion, and we're going to see what happens. But we have to have border security. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. Elections but have me, consequences, Mr. Just, President. Let me just say. That's right. And that's why the country this. is doing so well. But the President is representing in terms of his cards over there are not factual. We have to have an evidence-based conversation about what does work, what money has been spent, and how effective it is. Molly Ball, uh, it was an iconic moment for Pelosi. But tell us why, if it's obviously, it may be self-apparent, why you decided to open your book uh, recreating that scene. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, this was actually 2018, right after the midterm elections. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank had, you. Which which had uh, been, you know, the first national elections of the Trump era and which had which handed control of the House to the Democrats and which were in some ways a referendum on Nancy Pelosi. She uh, the Republicans have been quite open about the fact that she basically constituted their entire campaign strategy, not for the first time, uh, putting her face in thousands and thousands of ads in every, uh, you know, particularly uh, pinkish, conservative-leaning House district across the country, reminding voters, nothing unfair about this, reminding voters that a vote for their uh, nice local House Democratic candidate was, in effect, a, a vote to put Nancy Pelosi in charge of the House. And she is quite unpopular nationally, a quite polarizing figure, particularly in those conservative-leaning districts. But of course, the strategy didn't work in 2018. The Democrats still uh, won the House by quite a big margin. So she goes into this negotiation with Trump, and there, and, and this is before uh, the government shutdown that eventually did ensue. Uh, but they're trying to keep the government open, trying to negotiate the budget, uh, and Trump decides to bring in the cameras, have this negotiation in public, try to throw the Democrats off balance. Uh, interestingly, uh, as, as I report in the book, it was only Chuck Schumer who was invited to the White House for this meeting. Uh, but Pelosi and Schumer sensed that this was a divide and conquer strategy on the president's part. Uh, and so they insisted on coming together and, and presenting a united front. Uh, but, but, but this is also the meeting that ended with uh, Nancy Pelosi walking out of the White House and putting on that red coat and those sunglasses 
and being photographed with that little smirk on her face. And this is the image that, that is on the cover of my book. Uh, because it immediately became a meme and it was all over Twitter and you had people photoshopping, you know, flames into the background and, and, and mushroom clouds to, to show, you know, and, and to me, it was really a pivotal moment in, uh, in the reversal of Nancy Pelosi's public image. Someone who, uh, for so long had been, uh, an object almost exclusively of, of derision suddenly became a sort of resistance folk hero. So, you know, Trump was very good for her in that regard. He gave her a, a sort of foil. Um, but I think it ha it also, uh, you know, was to do with the fact that as, as epitomized by that moment you just played, uh, so many women responded to the, uh, the, the, the site and, 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 the, and the dialogue of, of Pelosi facing off with Trump and refusing to let him tell her where she stood, refusing to let yeah. him put her in her place, interrupting him when he tried to insult her and tell her where she stood and saying, no, Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring. Uh, to this to this conversation. So uh, it was that comment as much as anything. And that comment also became a meme and was on T-shirts and so on. And, you know, Pelosi's stock with the left went went up and down over the course of uh, of her term as speaker that began in 2018. Uh, but that to me really showed that that uh, that that uh, so many women who, of course, powered the so-called resistance, powered the, the Democrats' electoral strength against Trump, uh, suddenly saw something uh, in Nancy Pelosi uh, that, that, that really resonated. Tamar? And I think that that moment, specifically, you hear her talk um, a lot about what she considers one of her greatest strengths, which Molly brings, the, you know, talks about over and over in her book. She sees herself as the best vote counter on Capitol Hill. And it's something that that often she's kind of rolling her eyes at other people, even in her own party, but especially in the GOP, that that, you know, they don't have their fingers on the, the pulse of their members like she does. And, and she, you know, no one else commands the loyalty of their members just as well as she does. And part of that's tied up in her, you know, finesse when it comes to fundraising, a skill that she's honed over decades and really kind of um, created this this climate on Capitol Hill where you are expected to fundraise all the time because she was so darn good at it and built so much loyalty that way. Um, you know, Trump was, was good for Nancy Pelosi in a, in a lot of ways. Um, it did galvanize the support of women who all of a sudden realized it's so important to have this powerful woman in the room going toe to toe with Trump. Um, you know, he also brought about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, um, which was successful in the House, but not in the Senate. And that is what enabled, you know, that was a message that she grabbed onto immediately and was able to wield incredibly effectively on the campaign trail in 2018 that helped bring the Democrats back to the majority, uh, helped bring the speakership back to her. And you saw that work for her in places like Georgia, where Lucy McBath was able to knock Karen Handel out of power right when she won a year earlier in, in a Cobb County longtime Republican district. Uh, back in 2017, you saw... Uh, Karen Handel wields this this message of, of Nancy Pelosi as this San Francisco villain to hammer John Ossoff over and over again. That did not work against Lucy McBath in 2018 because she had that message of Obamacare repeal and, you know, kind of the messaging that, that Pelosi helped solidify for the party. Um, Patricia, I want to give you a, a chance. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, sure. I was just going to um, follow up on what Tamar said about Pelosi being such a great vote counter. Um, I was always struck when I covered her and when I spoke with her staff, how much of the legwork it was Pelosi doing. She didn't seem to um, outsource that to deputies or to the whip office. Um, she seemed to really, really develop those relationships and then deploy them in a way that I thought was so fascinating covering her. And that was really, to me, the essence of her power. It wasn't just because she declared herself in charge. It was because she had managed to um, coalesce the support <clears throat> behind her in ways that were not always um, uh, all that friendly. <laughs> you know, people were a little afraid of Nancy Pelosi from time to time. Um, and Molly, I'd love to hear from you what your observations were of of how she did that, how she, when she counted those votes, that really meant she was getting people's votes. So what were some insights that you got from this book about just how she's able to have done that and how she continues to do it? Thank you so much, Patricia. Yeah, that's a, that is obviously an important theme of the book and something that I've thought about a lot uh, because so much of this book is a sort of study in leadership, study in legislating and, uh, and that whole process. And I do compare uh, the wrangling of votes on Capitol Hill uh, to, to the earlier chapter in Pelosi's life when she was a full-time mom of five children uh, who were born in the space of six years. Uh, because, uh, you know, as a, as a mother of three myself, I see a lot of parallels there. Uh, and, uh, and not least of which because uh, politicians can be as, as ornery, self-centered, and unreasonable as toddlers. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, it is a, a matter of managing personalities. And part of it is just these relationships that she has. And you're right, Patricia, it, she, she delegates very little. She really... Uh, some would say uh, is a micromanager. It can be quite uh, quite controlling uh, on a personal level, uh, but she knows every single member of her caucus. On uh, many of them, she has personally recruited to run for office and helped get elected. Uh, she knows the makeup of their districts. She knows what their pet issues are. She knows who they do and don't get along with, and what caucuses they're a member of. You know, the House is an incredibly complicated place, as as, as of course you know with 435 members and 200 odd uh, Democrats. Uh, and, and she just knows every one of them on a very detailed level and has a personal relationship with them. And so while it's true that a lot of people are afraid with her, afraid of her, uh, she, she doesn't punish people very often. It's more just that they fear her disapproval, much the way uh, you know an effective mother is able to get her children uh, to uh, particularly her, her kids talk about the sort of Catholic mom guilt that she is able to impose so effectively. Uh, there's a story that, that a member told me about when uh, somebody had, had crossed her and it came time to hand out the, the committee assignments and, and that person still got on his preferred committee. And people said to, to Nancy Pelosi, well, why did you give him his, his committee after what he did? And she said, well, now he owes me. Now he has to be with me next time. So, you know, there, there are individual tactics that I detail in the book, things like, you know, negotiating tactics. The, the, the fake concession is one of my favorites where you pretend to be giving something that you, to some that's really painful to your uh, negotiating partner when actually it's something you didn't care about or, or not even a real thing. Uh, little, little things like that. But what I came to conclude was that more than any 
specific tool or, or tactic or strategy. It's just a very deep understanding of human nature on her part. She just really understands human motivation. She understands what makes people tick and knows uh, with each individual member which sort of buttons to push to, to, to make them move in her direction. So um, I do want to talk a bit about her life, which you document so well in the book, Molly. And of course, Patricia and Tamara, I want you to get engaged in this conversation of that. Um, because she began life, her, her father was, of course, a celebrated politician, mayor of Baltimore, when a member of, uh, of Congress himself, uh, a, a very powerful political uh, organization in Baltimore. Um, but her mother, you tell us, was a woman who may have had great ambitions, may have been able to accomplish a lot herself, but was restricted uh, largely because of the way in which women were viewed as uh, the caretakers of families. And, and, and that had a, a big impact on the way, you tell us, Nancy Pelosi uh, viewed what she would hope to accomplish next. Talk a little bit about those early years and the family dynamic. Yeah, you know, I did. Be, I did begin uh, the story of Nancy Pelosi's life with her mother. Uh, it was something that that she mentioned to me uh, the, the first time I interviewed her. The first conversation that we had uh, back in uh, early 2018, uh, and uh, and it was clear to me that you know because there had been so much emphasis on her coming from this political family because everybody knew. Uh, that her father had uh, had been a politician, he had gotten so much credit for her her life and career, which is natural. She went into the family business, but she clearly felt like her mother had not gotten enough credit as an influence in her life and also as a political figure in her own right. And this was something that uh, her five brothers also used to say that their mother was the real politician in the family. And you see this with a lot of political families or, and a lot of men's careers, right? That famous behind every man is a, is, is a great woman. But uh, it, it, it was certainly the case in this family that, that uh, Nancy Pelosi's mother was the sort of uh, political brain and strategist and enforcer behind uh, the, the man whose name was on the ballot. Uh, so she was shaped by her mother's personality and her mother's political acumen, but she also, as you said, was very deeply affected uh, by the things that her mother could not do. Her mother wanted uh, to go to law school. She wanted at one point to be an auctioneer. She uh, invented and patented a beauty pro product and, and wanted to, to market it nationally, wanted to make investments. Uh, but at that time in the 1940s, uh, you needed a, a man's signature uh, to do those things and her husband wouldn't give it to her. So Nancy Pelosi grew up acutely aware of the ways that being a woman uh, held her mother back. Her mother, she saw her mother being being stifled, being stymied, being limited in her horizons. And I think uh, that that made her sort of a, a, a feminist uh, from the very beginning and and, and shaped her, her determination uh, to achieve whatever she wanted in life, uh, regardless of those kinds of limitations. What struck me about um, kind of an anecdote, Molly, that you mentioned in your book is you talk about this, this basically this favor file that they used to keep in the D'Alessandro house in Baltimore. You know, who asked for a job, who needed help getting their, their government benefits and who, you know, who her father would need to would go back to 
you know, later to get their vote uh, when election time came around. And you can kind of see how that shaped her worldview when she got to Congress. Um, like Molly said, you know, Pelosi didn't necessarily go and punish people after they voted against her, but she would certainly remember it whenever they asked for something in return. And you'd see it a lot when folks, for example, were running for um, committee chairmanships or wanted a spot in leadership. She would not hesitate to shiv somebody who she thought crossed them, um, the most famous, crossed her, the most famous being Steny Hoyer, her longtime kind of frenemy, um, <laughs> going back decades to when they were in their 20s. But you saw it with um, with Jack Martha, her longtime ally who ended up running to be her, her deputy, um, who Pelosi backed, even though he ended up losing, and also Anna Eshoo um, on the Energy and Commerce Committee. So um, that was interesting to see how, how that sensibility was shaped at such a pivotal age. And Molly, um, when you talked about uh, Pelosi referring back to having five children, um, she did that a lot. And she does that a lot. She talks a lot about being a mom. Um, and uh, she also um, she for a woman who is so modern in her power, um, it's a very traditional family that she has. You know, she was basically a stay at home mom of five kids and is still married to her husband, you know, as a long time marriage. And um, I think the two of them are very close. I think he picks up her dry cleaning for her. Um, could you talk a little bit about her family life and um, how uh, how that uh, really just what kind of a mom and wife she was before she was this person that we all know? Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I've thought about it a lot. I think uh, because our sort of archetypes for women in politics are still so new, are still evolving because there have been so few women still at the very highest reaches of politics and leadership, uh, I think she really has uh, deployed uh, her femininity in different ways from a lot of women that you've seen at that level, right? Uh, Hillary Clinton famously, uh, when she went into politics herself, uh, sort of aspired to this almost genderless, almost masculinized uh, ideal uh, to sort of make people forget that she was a woman so that they wouldn't hold it against her. And Nancy Pelosi has always done the opposite, the way she dresses, the way she comports herself, the way she uh, relates to other people, and the way she talks about her family, talks about uh, herself as, as a mother and grandmother, uh, as, as the matriarch of this big Italian Catholic family. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, a cynic might say that that's a way of, of, of defanging some of these stereotypes, right? A way of putting people at ease who might have uh, sort of sexist assumptions that sort of reassures them, yes, I am a woman in the ways that you expect women to be, uh, and, and and therefore doesn't challenge uh, their preconceptions. But I think it's also just the way she is. Uh, and so, yes, she is married to this day to her college sweetheart, Paul Pelosi, who is a businessman. Uh, you hear very often accusations from, from both the left and the right that, that her being extremely wealthy, which she is, uh, somehow uh, discredits her. That is mostly his money. Uh, in, I mean, it's their money, obviously, but it is money that has come from his career in business. It is not, you know, bribes she's taken as a congresswoman or anything like that, which I think is a common misconception. Um, he's been very successful in business. They, they met when uh, he was at Georgetown and she was at uh, Trinity uh, Women's College in D.C., and uh, they took a summer course together on African cultures and met through mutual friends. 
and uh, he asked her out for a beer, uh, and she then and now does not drink alcohol, so she said no. Uh, so he asked her out for dessert instead, and she sort of said, now you're speaking my language. Uh, she is a, a big fan uh, of chocolate, and particularly chocolate ice cream. Um, so, uh, you know, despite her determination to not end up like her mother had been, uh, at first that was exactly where she was headed. She was married right out of college, uh, became a, a stay-at-home mom, followed her husband for his career first to New York City, where uh, she had the, the first four of their children, and then they moved across the country to his hometown of San Francisco, uh, where their, their fifth child, Alexandra, was born. Uh, so she was always politically involved, having come from a political family, having been you know, very passionate about politics herself. And, and while she clearly did, as, as Tamara was saying, absorb a lot of that transactional style of politics from her father, uh, she, I think, added to it a different dimension, which was sort of more ideological, more idealistic, more in the mold of uh, a John F. Kennedy, who she absolutely idolized uh, as, as a young Catholic Democrat. Uh, so she was a very active political volunteer, active in, the, in California politics, in the California Democratic Party, and became a major fundraiser uh, all, long before she ever uh, began running for office herself. Um, we got to get to our first break of the show, uh, but we'll be back with a lot more with Molly Ball, author of Pelosi. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Time Magazine National Political Correspondent Molly Ball, author of Pelosi, joins us today, as do Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC, and Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter, and now political insider columnist are all with us to talk about Nancy Pelosi. Um, Molly Ball, I, I, I don't want to uh, not mention the fact that there are no doubt and I'll probably be hearing from them either through email or Facebook or wherever they post, uh, people who think that Nancy Pelosi is the devil incarnate. Um, she obviously uh, uh, continues to be uh, demonized by many Republicans uh, who see her as someone who upholds liberal values, San Francisco liberal values that are uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen to this country. Um and, and, of course, the other interesting thing about that is, despite the fact we now, in many ways, lionize her, especially after her uh, relationship with Trump, um, she didn't even have Democrats completely convinced that she was the person who was going to bring the party uh, through difficult times and put them back in control, Right. That's right. And, and I should say, you know, my aim with this book is not to, to lionize or to demonize, but merely to uh, tell the story of a fascinating and consequential uh, political figure. Um, but uh, she is, it, it, you can't talk about Nancy Pelosi without talking about her public image and particularly uh, her, her deep unpopularity. And some would say 
demonization by the right. She has always been associated with this talking point of uh, the San Francisco liberal. And in fact, she is part of the origin story for that phrase. It was in yeah. 1984 that Nancy Pelosi was uh, as a as a as a Democratic fundraiser and uh, and party operative uh, was instrumental in bringing the Democratic National Convention to San Francisco. And it was because of that uh, Democratic Convention in San Francisco that Republicans began using the, uh, this phrase of San Francisco liberals. Uh, it, Pelosi's perspective on it is that she believes it is simply a homophobic dog whistle. She believes that it, it had its origins as a way to uh, associate the Democratic Party with gay rights. Uh, at a time when San Francisco was the epicenter, uh, not only of, of American gay culture, but uh, it was the, the beginning of the, the AIDS crisis, which she would go on to be very, very active in, in legislating uh, on that on that topic when she got to Congress in in, in 1987. Uh, but it obviously has a valence with all sorts of other uh, cultural, social issues. Uh, and, uh, and, and she has been, uh, and so it's her public image that has been the source also of the democratic angst about Nancy Pelosi of the, uh, attempts, uh, particularly in, uh, 2016 and 2018, uh, to prevent her from remaining, uh, the leader of the House Democrats. Uh, you did not hear a lot of her, her, her critics within the party saying, Oh, she's not good at this job. She's not good at, you know, running the House of Representatives or negotiating with Republicans to get the most out of, you know, legislative deals. It was really all about uh, her public image and these hundreds of thousands of ads uh, that, that Republicans have been running since 2006, uh, honestly, um, with that, that, that associate her unpopularity uh, with the rest of the party and had been, at least in, in some cycles, have been, had been very effective. So uh, Democrats uh, felt like if we just, uh, you know, get rid of this sort of uh, liability of Nancy Pelosi's public image, maybe we could convince America that we are not uh, these, you know, liberal fruitcakes. Uh, and it's been interesting to see that uh, that as Nancy Pelosi, uh, as Nancy Pelosi's public image has evolved a little bit, uh, you do see Republicans moving on to other figures. But they all but but most of them happen to be female. Certainly Bernie is in a lot of these ads. Uh, but you but you mostly see, you know, the so-called squad uh, and Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she hasn't run for anything in a while. Uh, still in those ads being associated with Democrats uh, to remind Republicans and conservative-leaning voters of what they dislike about the Democratic Party. Patricia, I want to get you in here, but before I do, just a quick aside, uh, Molly, uh, I did not know until I read your book that Pelosi was responsible for bringing the convention to San Francisco in 84. The Moscone Center was the single worst venue for a political convention I've ever had to work at. And now I have something to blame her for myself, Patricia. There you go. <laughs> well, that really speaks to her marketing skills, doesn't it? <laughs> Convincing people to go to the worst convention center ever. Um, well, I think when, you know, when history looks back at Nancy Pelosi, one of the things she'll, of course, be known for is impeaching the same president twice. Um, and there was a phrase that I read once in your book, once before, and then I reread it right before this um, interview, and it just jumped off the page to me. And I wanted to get your insight into it. 
Um, and it was after 2018 when Pelosi had just been, or 2019, just sworn in again as speaker. And she's talking about her concerns about Donald Trump, or you're writing about her concerns about him. And um, you wrote, it seemed possible that American democracy itself was on the precipice, a president with authoritarian impulses shutting down the government and declaring a national emergency could well be the first step toward dictatorship. Um, And I had heard her float those concepts before um, and wrote it off as a bit of hyperbole. And I think after what's happened in the last month, it really... um, shed some light for me on why she was impeaching him and willing to impeach him more than once. Um, And I wonder if you could talk about her genuine concerns about democracy sort of ahead of other people's um, other people maybe who have joined her since then. Yeah. um, Obviously the impeachment, the second impeachment uh, going on right now, uh, and uh, those, the, that one article of impeachment was, was transmitted from the House to the Senate uh, yesterday evening. Uh, so it's very much a, a live matter. But, you know, she was always caught in the middle of this impeachment issue. And uh, to a lot of Democrats, uh, she was, was too reluctant to go down the impeachment road uh, the first time. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, Democrats uh, had those kinds of concerns about Donald Trump's uh, authoritarian tendencies uh, from the very beginning. And she stiff-armed them for a long time, right? Uh, famously so. And that came from her experience with past presidential impeachments. Uh, she had uh, lived through the Nixon administration. And then she also lived through the Clinton administration, uh, when she thought that the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton was, the word she uses for it uh, to this day is she thought it was a joke and she thought it was politically motivated. And she also thought that it was uh, politically a bad idea for the Republicans. And so when she became speaker the first time in 2007, a very similar situation, right? You have an unpopular Republican president uh, who is particularly loathed uh, by the left. And uh, she resisted calls to impeach George W. Bush uh, for that entire, for the entire two years that she was a speaker while he was president, uh, because she believed that the, that people wanted to impeach him over what was essentially a policy difference, and that was not legitimate. That impeachment needed to be reserved for serious crimes, serious threats to American democracy, uh, and that it could be politically damaging. So when she goes up against Trump, that was sort of the baggage that she brought into it. And she did spend the many months at the beginning of that uh, speakership that began in 2019, uh, resisting the calls from the left for impeachment for both uh, substantive and political reasons until the Ukraine scandal happened and uh, a combination of, you know, she believed on the merits that it, that it had to be done, even if it was politically damaging. Uh, but also her caucus had moved to that position, although she would not like you to say that, that she caved uh, to pressure from her caucus. I have asked her that question and she did not like it at all. Uh, so, um, so that was the first impeachment uh, and, it, you know, ended in, in Trump's acquittal. But I think she carried those concerns forward. And they did, as you say, Patricia, they did become a lot more vivid to people after the attack on the Capitol. And that was why I think you saw, uh, at least on the Democratic side, absolute unanimity in moving very quickly to that second uh, impeachment. All right. Um, good place to stop. I've got to get to another break. When we come back, I'd like to bring uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi up to date. 
uh, it's a new world in Washington. Democratic president of the United States, uh, a Senate that has now got a Democratic majority, but a House where Nancy Pelosi's margin for uh, error is much narrower than it had been. So we'll talk about that after we take this break. Uh, Molly Ball, one kind of quick question. Uh, Georgia uh, votes for Joe Biden for president, first time since 92. The state has elected a Democratic presidential candidate and then sends two Democrats to the U.S. Senate, giving the Democrats majority there. Uh, how, how, what do you think the country's view, how, how has it altered the country's view, do, do you think, of the state of Georgia right now? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for me, as a, a, a national uh, political reporter, it has inspired me certainly to see it as uh, a pinkish purple state, I would say, right? Um, it's interesting for me from a couple of perspectives. I actually uh, lived in Georgia when I was young. Uh, my, my mother got her graduate degree at UGA, so we lived in Athens for a few years. Um, but also, it seems like a state that is evolving similarly to a couple of other states that I've lived in. I'm originally, I, I grew up mostly in Colorado, uh, which was a red state for a long time and, and then was a purple state and, and now is pretty much a blue state. And, and now I live in Virginia, which has gone through the same trend, which seems to be going through the same transition. And it's, and it's for the same reasons, right? You do have uh, demographic change and the uh, increasing diversity of the electorate, but much more than that, you have a very large population of mostly white suburbanites who are focused on quality of life issues and who may have some trepidation about uh, the Democrats, but as the Republicans have uh, increasingly seemed to cater to uh, you know, the more far-right elements of their base, and as Democrats have worked very hard to uh, cement a sort of mainstream image and um, and to reassure voters that they, too, are focused on those those quality of life concerns and not on some kind of revolutionary social change uh, that has increasingly moved those kinds of moderate voters uh, over into the Democratic column. And uh, and they haven't really looked back. So I'll, I'm going to be really interested uh, to watch Georgia and hopefully visit and uh, eat some food and do some reporting. <laughs> uh, uh, my brother also lived in, in Savannah for many years. Uh, he was stationed there with the Army, so I had a lot of uh, wonderful occasions to, to visit that great city. Um, but so it's going to be really interesting for me, and I'm sure for you as well, to, to see whether Georgia continues on that path of, uh, of, of political evolution in the same way that those other states have. Something I'm really eager to ask Molly about because you know, Speaker Pelosi has mentioned that this will be her last term as speaker. She cut a deal in 2018 with some of the more moderate members of her party that that she would only uh, be be around until you know 2022, 2023. And I'm wondering what the lasting impact of her legacy will be on the House as an institution, because she did a lot to really enforce party loyalty, um, and and it could be argued that the House is a more partisan place in part because of Nancy Pelosi and, um, you know, her kind of cracking the whip and really forcing her members from the most diehard liberals to your your moderates to, to hold the line. She also, you know, she didn't have the best relationship with Newt Gingrich when he was speaker, but she did benefit from a lot of the changes he made, including centralizing a lot of the authority um, in the leadership offices. And so she's been able to really benefit that to get her priorities in place. Um, so how do you think 
her impact, what kind of impact is she going to make even once she's gone? Yeah, no, I think those are two really uh, important and correct uh, observations about uh, her impact on, on the house and the way it functions. You know, uh, we haven't talked about it that much, but I spend a lot of the book chronicling uh, what I see as her focus on results, her focus on legislating, not politics, not her public image. And of course, every politician says that, right? I just want to get things done for the American people. But I think in her case, you really can look at uh, the record of her long career and, and see that demonstrated over and over and over again. So, you know, I've asked her about her legacy and what she says she wants to be remembered for is the Affordable Care Act, full stop. That is her proudest achievement. She played uh, an enormous and I think underappreciated role in the passage of that legislation, which for all of the flaws that people talk about today, uh, was a, a, a century long achievement for the Democrats when they've been trying to achieve uh, the, the accessibility of health care for, for every American, trying to achieve for the better part of a century. So that's what she would like her legacy to be. And she has played a role in other, uh, you know, liberal legislation accomplishments of, of Democrats in the Congress. Uh, and she also, I think, will be remembered for her effectiveness. You talk to congressional scholars and they will tell you, uh, citing statistics like the party loyalty that she has enforced, but also uh, the productivity of the House and other things, um, that they, she is considered one of the most effective legislative leaders of the past century uh, in, in a category, I think, with a, with a Sam Rayburn or, or even an LBJ in terms of just her effectiveness in running the House, making it function, uh, and at a time of historic polarization and gridlock, at a time when both of her Republican predecessors, uh, Boehner and Ryan, were completely unable to make the House function. The House repeatedly shut down on their watch and was essentially paralyzed. And she was able to take that same institution and, and make it run, make it work. And, and there was not a government shutdown on her watch. And lastly, I think being the first woman Speaker of the House, being to this day the only woman uh, to lead a party in the Congress it, it is an achievement uh, that, that, uh, that we don't um, talk about enough uh, because it came a, a, against tremendously long odds. She was up against a, a male-dominated Democratic establishment. Uh, Bill, as you mentioned, when she got to the House in 1987, there were only 23 women out of 535 members of the House and Senate. So uh, she has been able to forge a, a new path for women uh, at a time when it, it was very, very difficult to do so, when most of the women in Congress uh, were the widows of, of male legislators, not women who had gotten there on their own steam. So th those are the things that I think uh, will be her lasting legacy. Um, Molly, when you talked about the passage of the Affordable Care Act, I remember when she walked to the vote hand in hand with John Lewis, who, of course, all of our listeners um, knew so well. And even though they had both run for whip in 1998, they went on to become very good friends, I believe. And I think um, she was quite close to him. And do you have any insight on that relationship? Only what you said, that they were very close and that uh, uh, in addition to uh, revering him as a, as a civil rights hero, as so many Democrats did, she had a very 
close and warm personal relationship with him. They did briefly run against each other for, for WHIP uh, when that campaign began in 1998, when the position wasn't yet open. They were hoping that if Democrats took the majority, which took them quite a few more years to do, uh, that that <laughs> WHIP position would open up. Uh, but actually, uh, when Pelosi began campaigning for this several years before the position was available, uh, she sort of wore him out. And he ended up dropping out of that race, saying this is too intense. This is way too early. Who wants to spend years campaigning for a position that might not even exist? Uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course. But so so they briefly uh, were pitted against each other, but he ended up not pursuing uh, that right. And I think is she I think she's pushing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act now. Yes, she is. Okay. Um, so, so, Molly, um, one of the things, and we're, we're a little bit short on time, but I'd love for you to describe uh, what this word means when it's attached to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you tell us in the book that people came to say that what she was more than anything else is operational. What does that yes. mean? Uh, that, well, so this is a word that was used by uh, one of her political mentors, Bill Burton, uh, sort of... Uh, liberal lion of the house in his day in the in the 70s and 80s and um and it was his highest compliment his highest term of respect to say that somebody was focused on 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 getting things done not on making themselves feel good or look good or anything else but on results and that has always been her lodestar and it's uh her i I think it's her highest compliment as well uh that uh, at the end of the day that is what you're focused on. You're focused on getting things done and uh, everything else is sort of decoration. And so this is when you talk about her public image, this is something that she's just utterly uninterested in because unless it matters to whether she can get results. So you ask her about, you know, the way that she's perceived and the tremendous, you know, negativity that is attached to her. And she just sort of bats it away. And, and, and her, her stock answer to that is if I weren't effective, I wouldn't be a target. She just views it as the, the cost of doing business. If, if you're able to achieve results, if you're able to get laws passed and do well in negotiations and get funding for the priorities that you care about, that's going to make you a target. Of course, the people who disagree with you are going to want to take you out because of that. And so she has never been particularly interested or concerned with the way that she's perceived, in part because she keeps getting reelected in her uh, very, very liberal district in San Francisco. So it doesn't really affect her if people somewhere else view her negatively. Uh, and, and in part because it, it just isn't what she cares about. What she cares about is, uh, is that operational quality, is that ability to get things done. Tomorrow, we got about uh, time for one quick back and forth if you want to jump in. Sure. I mean, so the next two years are going to be very challenging for for Nancy Pelosi. She has the narrowest of my majorities in the House, ditto with the Senate, where we're at 50-50 split. And not only does she have moderate members who are still concerned about going too liberal, but she also has members of the squad, some of whom are angling for Senate positions. I guess briefly, can you talk about the challenges ahead for her? You got yeah, about 20 I seconds. <laughs> Well, I think uh, what I would say about that is that it is solidly in the middle of her skill set, as we have talked about enforcing party unity, hurting the cats in the Democratic caucus, getting everybody on the same page. It's really, 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 really hard. Uh, she may make it look easy, but it's really hard. Uh, but it is also the thing that she is best at. So I would not uh, not put anything past her when we look toward the, the next two years of passing legislation in the House. 
Oh, Molly Wolf, nice job keeping me on time. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Your book about Pelosi called Pelosi is wonderful. I encourage our listeners to read it. Uh, Patricia Murphy, Tamar Hellerman, always wonderful to have you on the show. That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, take care, stay healthy, and wear your mask, please. See you tomorrow.